Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I'm one of the senior editors of the Oxford Journal Global Summetry. I welcome you today to this podcast, another in the series on global summetry issues. Today we will be discussing climate change and global environmental issues with Sir David King. Sir David is a noted academic in the United Kingdom. He is the founding director of the Smith School of Enterprise and Environment at Oxford University, and he was the head of the Department of Chemistry at Cambridge University from 1993 to 2000. But Sir David has had also a notable governmental career, serving first as the government's chief scientific advisor from 2000 to 2007, and then in 2013, Sir David was appointed to the new permanent special representative for climate change to the foreign secretary. Today, Sir David and I will be talking about a number of key initiatives that have advanced global governance in the climate change space. This turn by the journal to climate change governance is an important addition to our work in global symmetry generally. Climate change is now a key issue in global governance and deserves much more of our attention. There are notably new actors and new arrangements that require our exploration and hopefully to further our understanding of the contemporary global order. We are pleased to begin our work in climate change with this podcast interview with Sir David. But just before I welcome Sir David, I would like to provide a quick shout out to Tom Hale at the Blavatnik School of Government at Oxford University. Tom works in the area of climate change, among other issue areas in the school. He was good enough to introduce me to Sir David King. Also, a quick shout out to my researcher, Stephen Zhao, who is currently at Oxford University taking his master's in international relations. He was good enough to travel down from Oxford University to London to provide the technical support for the podcast. Finally, as always, my great appreciation to Harmony Chichi Chier here in Toronto, who is the chief technical support and editor for our various podcast series. And now to Sir David King. So welcome, Sir David King, to the Global Summetry Journal's podcast series. It's a pleasure to have you. Delighted to be here with you. Oh, that's great. Um, I wanted to take you back behind the Paris Agreement on climate change, behind, obviously, the meeting, which is known as uh, COP21, and ask you, what did you see as the major problem facing the parties on the climate change agreement with respect to CO2 emissions and reducing those emissions? The major problem from a political viewpoint is very different from uh, the major problem in terms of the science. So would you like me to deal with each of those? Yes, please. 
Right. So the science, I think, I would have to say the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has done a wonderful job over more than 20 years uh, reviewing literally thousands and thousands of papers in the academic literature. And their reports initially were phrased, I would say, rather conservatively, and then as the science became more and more certain, so the reports became much clearer, eventually saying that 97% of the scientific community recognised that global warming was happening and that it was essentially driven by human activity through deforestation and the use of fossil fuels, producing and increasing greenhouse gases, and that was what was causing the warming of the planet and the rise of sea levels that accompanies that. So the science became increasingly clear, but at the same time, there is uh, still in existence a movement of people who see their lives as bound by the need to destabilize the science. And so a big part of the action was dealing after the COP meeting in Copenhagen 2009, dealing with the sudden rise in the climate skeptic movement, which uh, really is funded very heavily by the fossil fuel industry in the United States, and possibly to a tune of very nearly $1 billion a year. That's what has been managed to be discovered so far. So the, the science story itself is read as something uncomfortable by many of those with vested interests, and that it's so the science became a battleground. And now, of course, as time moves along, the challenges of climate change become more and more apparent. And so that story uh, really is currently now much clearer in the sense that the risks associated with climate change, I think, are now well understood. The political challenges really arose from the initial Kyoto Agreement being very much top-down and riding behind the Montreal Protocol dealing with the ozone layer depletion, uh, the so-called ozone hole. Now, the Montreal Protocol was extraordinarily successful, but in a sense, it was, of course, a much simpler problem. We were dealing with one set of chemical CFCs, and it was a question of banning those. Whereas transitioning the global economy from a fossil fuel-based economy to a fossil fuel-free economy is clearly a bigger political and economic challenge. So I think that the, the political challenges were really focused in that uh, COP meeting in Copenhagen around the fact that uh, the United States had a president who wanted action on climate change but couldn't sign up to a top-down binding agreement of a Kyoto nature and therefore a president who was unable to say yes to what was on paper and a Chinese government saying that unless the United States signs, we're not going to sign. So if the two biggest global emitters and powerhouses were not going to sign, it was clear we were not going to get an agreement. So the big turnaround came with an understanding that we had to have a bottom-up process, and that bottom-up process was begun in Durban and finished in Paris. So I, I think that the, the final success is measured in two different ways. One is that we've got 190-plus nations with 
nationally determined contributions, and that's the bottom-up process. Nobody telling each nation what they should be doing, each nation volunteering what they would do to reduce emissions. And on the other hand, an agreement that we should stay below a two degrees, or if possible, even aim for a 1.5 degrees limit on the temperature rise since the Industrial Revolution. Now, the reality, when you add up all the nationally determined contributions, is that we're still on a three to four degrees centigrade pathway. So there's still an awful lot of work to be done in connecting the two decisions made in Paris. One, to accept these nationally determined contributions, and two, to achieve an objective that those NDCs, when added up, don't actually achieve. Yes, and I take it when you looked at the landscape, you saw particularly in Europe an effective program on renewables. This is the so-called feed-in tariff. What did you take from that program to move from, you know, the coal-fired electricity over to renewables? So I think I'm, I'm going to take you back to 1989 when Germany first introduced feed-in tariffs. Uh, in Britain, we had our first equivalent to feed-in tariffs, 1997, and it goes right through to the present day in terms of what's called a contract for difference. A uh, contract for difference simply being the British government managing utilities that are in the private sector by setting out different prices for different forms of energy so that we end up with the right energy mix. The important part of what the European Union countries did, because Britain, Germany and Italy, Spain, France, etc., all followed a similar pathway, was create an ever-expanding marketplace, particularly for photovoltaics and wind turbines. And that ever-expanding marketplace had a learning curve which none of us anticipated. The price is still falling month on month for the installation of these uh, renewable energy, uh, primary energy sources. And so what has happened economically is that the European Union, I have to say, joined by California and now by several other states, has effectively taken the brunt of the cost of pulling the price of these uh, renewables down so that in many countries it's now a commercial option to go for renewables as a primary energy source. Mm -hmm. and, and that's why we reached the point in 2013 where more than 50% of new energy installation for electricity supplies around the world was from renewable energy uh, rather than from fossil fuels. Not because people were all keen to manage climate change, but the big additional action simply came from the commercial value of doing that. And of course, we're reaching the point now where distributed energy has got real advantages, not just direct commercial advantage cheaper, but it's also a goddamn useful way of reaching island states, of reaching, and currently almost every island state in the world burns diesel to create electricity, the most expensive way to do it, but also to reach out to off-grid villages, off-grid homes and farmsteads and so on around the world. And as a follow-through to this, Britain set up an Energy Africa program 
And we, we signed an agreement with the United States. They have a program that they named Power Africa. And the idea is to reach every small village in Africa by 2030 if their governments come to us and ask us to assist in that process. Now, this is rolling out distributed energy to villages that are off-grid, and we believe we will manage to do that at a cost of two to three times less than extending the grid to these villages. Now, I take it, though, in looking at that landscape and the dropping price of renewables and renewable energy, you created something called the Global Apollo Program. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about why you did that and who was with you in creating this particular program. Yes, yeah, so what became very clear is that feed-in tariffs do exactly as they describe. If you feed electricity into the grid using renewable energy, you will get a guaranteed price for every kilowatt hour you put onto the grid. That was what encouraged people to put rooftop solar on their roofs across Europe. Now, what it didn't do was deal with a subsequent problem, which is intermittency. And so as countries get to the point of approaching 20% renewables on the grid on average around the year, they're finding that there are times when the amount of renewable energy on the grid is way beyond 50% and sometimes well beyond 80% of total electricity. Now, that creates commercial problems for utilities. So clearly what is needed in this rollout of renewable energy is another set of technologies, and in particular, energy storage technology and smart grids. Smart grids designed in such a way that you're using electricity when it's in overabundant supply with sources in factories, in every house where washing machines can be run when it's in overabundant supply. And then these things be switched off when there is a shortage of electricity. So managing the supply-demand function at the same time as providing energy storage. And when it comes to energy storage, uh, we all know that Tesla is now producing energy storage using lithium-ion batteries and extending it to homes and selling it at $3,000 for nine kilowatt hours of storage, which for a relatively small home is enough electricity to see you 24-7 through the day. However, we need, in addition to storage of 10 kilowatt hours, we need megawatt hours for larger villages, we need gigawatt hours, we need tens of gigawatt hours for national grids. And so there's a tremendous demand for research and development into these new technologies so that we can, once again, through the learning curve, uh, develop cheap restorage technologies to match the uh, renewable energy systems and also, of course, managing supply-demand curves. Now, there are many, many other areas where developments are required. So when we set out the Global Apollo program, this was a group of us here in the United Kingdom, um, and I would say two people in particular were uh, working with me from the beginning on this, Richard Layard, LSE economist, and Gus O'Donnell, an economist as well, but uh, formerly head of the British Civil Service. And what we set out was a program in which leading countries working in 
publicly funded research and development would collaborate on a program aimed at filling these gaps in technology. And the idea was that we would fill all of these gaps within 10 years and at most 15 years, which is the sort of timescale we have to work to. Now, we launched that program after I had joined the Foreign Office uh, three years ago, and I had been traveling around the world talking to these countries about the possibility of joining. I knew that there were at least 15 countries that thought this was a good idea and were prepared to join. And we launched it in London as the Global Apollo Program in July last year. And I think perhaps the smartest thing we did was to get David Attenborough there at the launch to comment on it after we had explained what it was all about. And of course, that got media attention. But what we hadn't anticipated was that David Attenborough had just been invited by President Obama to the White House so that President Obama could interview him. And it is that way around. And President Obama, in th that interview, is asked by David Attenborough if he would join this Global Apollo program. And there and then he gets an acknowledgement of its importance from the president, and the president says, of course, we'll support it. Now, th that was the catalyst that we needed. I had already managed to get it on the G7 agenda earlier last year when it was in Germany. And we'd also got it onto the G20 agenda the year before because Prime Minister Modi put it on the agenda there. He was extremely enthusiastic about the Global Apollo program. I, he was the first Prime Minister I went in to see about the program because when he was elected, he said, we are going to solarize India from top to bottom. I thought he therefore needs Global Apollo program, and he understood that as well, became a tremendous supporter. But nevertheless, we hadn't really got it onto the agenda for the COP meeting until President Obama played a leadership role. So first day of the COP meeting, which was the day when the heads of governments were there, we had 20 governments saying they would join. Uh, between the 20 governments and the European Commission, which has also joined, we are currently spending $15 billion a year on research and development into clean energy. And every one of those governments has promised to increase their spending by a factor of two by 2020. So we will be spending $30 billion a year on this program. Could I take it that though Prime Minister Modi was a great supporter of the idea, fitting with his own energy uh, plans in India, he wasn't such a great supporter of the name, the Global Apollo Project? Now that is quite right. Um, even in that first meeting, I was told the Prime Minister didn't approve of the name Apollo. <laughs> Uh, and he came up with this alternative name, Mission Innovation. So at the launch, it was under this new title of Mission Innovation. And Mission Innovation is fine. I think the main idea of choosing the name Apollo was that uh, we wanted to have the notion that this was mission-oriented research. Mm -hmm. That, uh, you know, President Kennedy, in 10 years' time, we will land a man on the moon. And we're saying in 10 years' time, we'll have all the technologies for the whole world to achieve 100% renewable energy on electricity grids. And uh, so keeping the word mission in there was terrific. And so I'm perfectly happy with mission <laughs> innovation. Now, I take it, though, that there is a separate 
but related entity that was also, in effect, created at the launch with Mission Innovation. And can you tell me a little bit about that entity and who was involved in creating it? Well, perhaps the most surprising telephone call we've ever had was from uh, Bill Gates. <laughs> and uh, Gates simply said that he thought it was a necessary idea. He was quite critical about aspects of it. But uh, in the end, he said, I'm going to put a billion dollars of my own private money on the table to be used effectively as venture capital for the new technologies that emerge from mission innovation. Actually, it was called Global Apollo Program then. So we said, well, that's wonderful. I mean, I was just thinking as a young scientist, what, what wouldn't I like better than to have a doubling of research money that I was applying for and at the same time have venture capital sitting waiting for the new technologies to be pulled into the marketplace? It's like a dream. And then he did a bit of homework, arrived on that first day in uh, the meeting in Paris, and he had 28 co-signatories from wealthy individuals around the world, all contributing in total perhaps about $20 billion of venture capital money for what he then called the Breakthrough Energy Coalition. Now, I think you can see that this was exactly what we needed. We're trying to roll this into the marketplace quickly, and having venture capital sitting, waiting for the best ideas to be funded is ideal. Of course, we also need existing large companies to come forward and uh, be ready to take these on. I say that because we all know that the venture capital route can be quite long-winded, and we don't have time for that. So we're also very keen to see that the companies who have the engineering capacity, the technology capacity, should come forward and work with us on this program. So now today, obviously, there is mission innovation, which is state actors and public-private actors, research institutions within mission innovation, and also Breakthrough Energy Coalition, which is primarily private sector actors, venture capitalists, etc. These two entities obviously related in trying to move the yardsticks on technology innovation, storage, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I know that the ministers for Mission Innovation have met several times. What have you been able to accomplish since the creation of Mission Innovation? The first meeting of the ministers from the countries who are forming this uh, Mission Innovation program was in San Francisco last July. Mm -hmm. And at that meeting, we approved the, uh, the documents that had been prepared by the civil servants in each of the countries meeting very frequently in the run-up. Everyone has understood we need to get this off the ground very quickly. And just two weeks ago here in London, we've had a meeting which I think is critically important and I've been pushing for to establish what technologies we're going to focus on. Uh, we will report on the results of this three-day meeting involving scientists and technologists from 21 of the 22 countries, but also involving the civil servants who were involved in setting up the program. We are going to report on the seven 
areas of technology that we're going to focus on at the COP meeting in Marrakesh mm -hmm. on November the 14th is when our meeting will take place. Mm -hmm. Now, I think that is critically important because those seven programs of work were decided on with each program having at least six of the 22 countries committed to working on those programs. Some of the programs have got eight or nine countries saying they would like to work on them. So what we have is the beginnings of a true collaborative program. I ought to explain, each country is going to spend its publicly funded research, development and demonstration money as it wishes. So they can be influenced by the collaborative side of the program, but each country spends the money according to their own desires. So I think it's quite a, a feat already to have this program set out with this minimum of six countries involved in each aspect of the program. It's also important to say that the Breakthrough Energy Coalition sitting behind this is not, as some people have thought, an all-American group of wealthy individuals. Mm -hmm. There are two from Africa, two from India, two from China, two from Britain, and so on. And I, I give tribute to Bill Gates. He worked hard to see that he had wealthy individuals from around the world, and the encouragement to each of those countries is, my goodness, there's venture capital in our country and we could be the major beneficiaries mm -hmm. as these new technologies flow out around the world. So I, I, I want to say that this is now looking like being the single biggest wealth creation opportunity under a single heading, the energy sector, that the world has got at the moment. Everyone thinks of IT as the big wealth creating area. The energy area is going to be spending three to six trillion dollars a year on this transition by 2020 and the IEA is estimating a spend of around is it five trillion dollars by 2035 in this transition so we are looking at a massive opportunity to recreate wealth from that linkage between science, technology, innovation, and wealth creation in managing this global problem. So let me just ask you in kind of the concluding question, do representatives of the Breakthrough Energy Coalition actually join Mission Innovation when Mission Innovation ministers meet? That's the first part. And secondly, has the Breakthrough Energy Coalition yet begun to fund any innovation projects at this point? Right. So, so first of all, Breakthrough Energy Coalition is separate from Mission Innovation. Right. Uh, Mission Innovation is publicly funded, mm -hmm. and we're very careful not to create a direct linkage because, as I've said, it should not only be Breakthrough Energy Coalition that benefits from these new technologies. Uh, we're very much hoping that... You know, a range of companies from Tata in India to Rolls-Royce in Britain will benefit from the new technologies as well. Mm -hmm. It's up to each country to see how it interacts with members of the Breakthrough Energy Coalition. Your second question is a very interesting one. In California, I, I did meet up with the group that Bill Gates has set up already that group is looking at what technologies are emerging from existing publicly funded RD&D in this area. So I think they are expecting to announce by next month mm -hmm. what their first investments will be. 
I hope very much that we'll see them in Marrakesh, and that's going to be the ideal place for them to announce their investments. So this is Bill Gates, I think, getting ahead of the curve. Right. And I don't think the other wealthy individuals have yet got to that advanced state. Okay. Well, Sir David, I really want to thank you for spending some time with us describing this quite innovative program and indeed these new entities which are fast becoming major elements within the climate change transformation process. And I do hope we can speak to you later as progress is made in this particular critical area. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. I, I believe progress is already being made and it, it is simply a matter of how quickly we can get it moving. This Global Symmetry podcast was hosted by Alan Alexandrov, produced by Harmony Z, music by Kevin McLeod. For more information, check out globalsymmetryproject.com.